wrapping a five-week parenting series. Uh, we have many children in our church and many children being born all the time in, in our church. And so it was, uh, we're due up to, to talk about a, a kind of biblical, gospel-centered view of parenting. And, uh, you know, Shannon and I were talking a couple weeks ago. I mentioned to her that I was going to be doing a parenting series. And she said, oh, great, this is going to be a hard month. Because the Lord has a way of, you know, making sure I'm properly humbled uh, in my parenting the month that I'm giving a parenting sermon just to make sure that I'm actually the one that needs to hear this just as much as you do. So, uh, so anyways, uh, we're going to be looking at that for the next few weeks. And so um, sometimes we'll be looking at just one passage, but this week I have four passages that I'm going to read for us as we turn to God's Word. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 17. These are God's uh, words to Abraham. In the covenant, in his covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 17. So uh, you can follow along in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the, foreskin, uh, in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the uh, flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then reflecting on that, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 says this, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, uh, who were not merely circumcised, but who uh, also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was uncircumcised. And now another important verse. This is in uh, Acts chapter 2. Um, after the uh, Apostle Peter gives his first sermon, the first proclamation of the gospel, after the Holy Spirit comes on the church, this, uh, uh, this is what it says in Acts, Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter... And the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then tying together circumcision and baptism, this is Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's pray together. 
Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the many children that you've given uh, to our community. Uh, we pray that you would teach us about your promises, um, that we would be faithful as we disciple these children and uh, give us hope, give us courage, um, and encourage us now as we turn to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first uh, sermon in a parenting series is going to be on infant baptism. It's a good Sunday to do it uh, with the, the Dyke kids getting baptized. And so if you don't have a background with infant baptism and you're wondering why we're doing that, well, you get a whole sermon on why we do it right now. And, uh, you know, part of the reason that we're going to talk about infant baptism, you know, we have many uh, people in our church that come from different backgrounds. Some of you are Presbyterian church and some of you have a Presbyterian background. Many of you do not have a Presbyterian background. You've you not been in churches where they uh, baptize babies. So for some of you, this is kind of old hat. And for some of you, you need this sermon to kind of convince you, this is, oh, this is why you do that. Um, but I think for most of us, you know, when we think about a parenting series, we generally first think of, I need some practical tips on, you know, how to love my kids, build relationships with them, discipline them, things like that. And, of course, we're going to get to that in this series. But um, I'll tell you, as, uh, and, and we might think that talking about infant baptism is kind of like a doctrinal dispute. You know, it's kind of a parsing of words. Some people think you do it. Some people don't think you do it. But it's really a debate that's kind of fruitless. But I would say that as a parent, you know, I have five kids. And I would say there's no part of the Bible or Christian theology that has more impact on my day-to-day -day interactions with my kids than this doctrine of infant baptism. Nothing else does. It's the most important. And because at the root of infant baptism is the question, who are my children? Are my children lost unbelievers who I hope will someday become Christians? Or are my children young Christians who have a young faith who need to be discipled and they need to be taught and they need to be built up and strengthened in the young faith that they have. Those are two very different kinds of people and we have to have an understanding of which one, which category are our kids in. And uh, so it's a deeply important question and it's the foundation of everything else that we're going to say about parenting is are our kids that are growing up in our midst Christians or not? And so that's why our first talk will be arguing for why we should baptize infants or young children in our congregation. And the way I want to argue this is by answering three simple questions. This is what they are. What is the scriptural argument for infant baptism? Does the Bible teach it? It's the first important question. Second, what's the pastoral argument? What impact does it have on how we disciple the kids in our midst? A lot of impact. And then the third is what I would call what is the uh, spiritual argument? for infant baptism, and there's some real encouragement for us as parents in God's promises to our kids. So, three things, and we have a lot to cover this morning. So, first, what is the scriptural argument for infant baptism? And, you know, there's kind of a lot to cover in this first point, so stay with me. So, the basic scriptural argument is this, that the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is about God's people who are looking in faith to God to receive grace in Christ. The whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is about people learning to be saved by grace through faith. 
And so in the Old Testament, you know, if you read the Old Testament, you begin, the very beginning of the Bible, one of the first things you read in Genesis chapter 3 is there's this promise of a Savior who's going to come, this oracle where God says the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And it's this promise that it, the, uh, the um, outworking of that promise is what the whole Old Testament is about, is the, the people in the Old Testament looked um, to a promised coming Savior. And the hope of Israel in the Old Testament was that they were a people who were to look to God for grace, and that grace was to, supposed to be received by faith for them. And this covenant of grace that God made with Israel, he first made with their father Abraham back in, uh, in, in the early parts of Genesis. And um, Abraham was called the father of those who would believe, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And this passage that we just read from Genesis 17 is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And uh, if, as we were reading along, you probably picked up that one of the main aspects of that covenant is that God says, I'm going to be a God to you and to who? To your children after you, offspring. I'll be their God, not just your God, but their God as well. You see that in verse 7. It says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, this is an amazing promise that God intends for his grace to run in the lines of generations. The natural place where God's grace flows is from parents to their children. That's where he intends his grace to flow. That's his intention. That's how he wants it to work. And it's one of the most hopeful promises that you can, you can have as a parent. That God intends, he delights, and he plans for his grace to run from you to your children. And this is actually one of the reasons why Shan and I, when we first got married, you know, we were scared to have kids. But then we heard these promises that God made a pledge to them. He's made a pledge to us to be their God. And this was the thing that actually inspired us to have children. And so then God says to Abraham, he's going to give, them, give a sign to Abraham of this covenant that he's made to them, a covenant of grace. And it says in verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. After you, every male among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And so the sign of God's grace was being passed down through the generations of Israel through circumcision. Now, I think, you know, it's, it's common for many people to think, you know, the sign of circumcision was kind of a Jewish thing. It was kind of an ethnic thing. And we often think of Israel in the Old Testament is primarily kind of an ethnic people group that God had chosen. Of course, they were an ethnic people group. But the sign that was given uh, to Abraham was not about his ethnic descendants. It was about those who would have the faith of Abraham. And so the sign was a spiritual sign. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 makes clear that circumcision was a sign of the salvation that Abraham had by faith. Look at what it says in Romans 4. 11. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So that's, you know, that's the thing that we don't usually think that way. Abraham had faith in God, and his children expected to have faith in God. You would think that his children would have to come of age before they get the sign of being someone who believes in God. And yet, God says, I want you to put the covenant sign on your eight-day-old son. My promise is not just to you, but also to them. And so the question is, you know, circumcision, what is circumcision a sign of? 
In the Old Testament, said, God said, you know, you're not supposed to be, just be physically circumcised, but your heart is supposed to be circumcised. It's the cutting away of the sinful nature. And so it's about having a new heart. It's about being born again. It's about being filled with God's spirit and having a heart that actually loves God. It's about regeneration, which is exactly what a baptism is a sign of. Baptism is a sign of having new life in Jesus and having your sins washed away. And so in Acts chapter 2, when we come into the New Testament and Jesus comes and the gospel is now preached in Jerusalem and as I said, Peter gives this first sermon at Pentecost after the Holy Spirit comes on the church and uh, Peter preaches this gospel and it says all these men were cut to the heart and they said, what should we do? Okay, we're supposed to believe in the gospel and this is what Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for who? Your children and for all who are far off, everyone the Lord our God calls to himself. And so we come to the New Testament, and there's the covenant of Abraham still in place in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. The promise that God said, I will be a God to you and to your children, is still a truth of the New Testament church. And that's because when Jesus came and he began the church, it's not that he, he was making it more narrow who could be a part of his people. It was an expansion of who could be a part of God's people. And the Old Testament was Israel, and now it, it's expanding. And we're not cutting out the children. We're including the nations, and the nations are now being brought in to be a part of God's people. And so that is why in Colossians 2, when Paul is talking about circumcision, he says that Christians have been circumcised in Christ. If you're a Christian... You have been circumcised in Christ through baptism. Our baptism is the replacement for circumcision. It's how we were circumcised. Look at what it says in, in uh, Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. And so in the Old Testament, God put his covenant sign on someone through circumcision. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, God puts his covenant sign on someone through baptism. And uh, there's a change, of course, because in the Old Testament, there was shedding of blood, but Christ's blood was shed for us. So no longer does the sign have shedding of blood. It is clean water that washes us. And also it's expanding. It's not just males who are circumcised, but, but uh, men and women are both baptized. And the nations are brought in. And so the argument goes like this. That if in the Old Testament, children were given the covenant sign of salvation through faith, and they were included in the covenant community, it is assumed in the New Testament that the children of Christians would be included in the covenant community. And... Um, and if something had changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you know, the early church was largely Jews. And Jews knew that the promise was to them and to their children. And if they became Christians, and all of a sudden they came to Jesus, and the Messiah came, and someone told them, you know what, but the children are not included. They're not a part of the covenant community. They have to grow up. There would have been a huge controversy about that. There would have been all kinds of questions that people would have asked if there was going to have this um, cata you know, uh, cataclysmic kind of change happening in the covenants. There's not a word about it in the New Testament. And the fact that there is silence in the New Testament about it says that it is assumed that God's um, covenant succession from parents to their children is still in place in the New Testament. Now, some of you would say, but is there any evidence anywhere in the New Testament that an infant was baptized? 
Okay, that's a, you know, I can understand how it's consistent with the Old Testament, but is there any evidence of that? And what, one of the things that we see in the New Testament is what's called the oikos formula. Oikos is the uh, Greek word for household. And one of the things that we see in most of the baptisms that in, uh, in the New Testament is that when someone came to faith, their whole oikos, their whole household was baptized with them. So let me give you a list of examples. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Acts 16, Lydia was baptized with her household. Acts uh, 16 also, the Philippian jailer was baptized with all his family. Acts 18.8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Acts 11, you will be saved, you and all your household. It's called the oikos formula because it's a norm. That whenever baptism is happening and someone comes to faith in Jesus, their whole household is baptized with them. That is the pattern of the New Testament. And if you go into the Old Testament, the Oikos household is, is something that we know from the Old Testament certainly included the infants. And so I'll tell you, you know, there are many doctrines in the Bible that we could say, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the Bible teaches this. I'm not, it's kind of, it's not clear. I'll tell you for me, studying this, I think it's absolutely clear. There's no question that God includes the children of believers in his covenant. And they should receive the covenant sign, which is baptism. And by the way, the baptizing of infants was the practice of the church for the first 1,500 years of the church in all branches of the church. It was uniformly the practice of the church. So it's, in some ways, it was only recently that certain parts of the church, and even though the American church predominantly waits till people come of age, because we're a more individualistic society where you choose for yourself who you're going to be, so it's consistent with our culture, that has not been consistent with the pattern of the church throughout history. Okay? So this is the scriptural argument for infant baptism. But, you know, there's one other verse that's really important in this. Um, some of you know the famous scene in Luke 18 where there's uh, a bunch of people that are bringing these infants to Jesus. And the disciples say, oh, you know, the rabbi, he can't be bothered with little children coming around him. And what does Jesus say? Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Do not hinder the little children from coming to me. And, you know, we often think that in order for a child to be baptized, you know, they need to become more like us. You know, they need to have a sophisticated faith. They need to learn the Bible. They need to show some fruit and some maturity. And then maybe we'll consider you to be baptized. But Jesus says just the opposite. He says the little children don't need to become like us. He says we need to become like them. You need to become weak like a little child who just receives God's grace and receives his work in your life before you even called on him, his initiative, that we need to look and become like them. And so Jesus' concern that we don't hinder our children from coming to him is really at the heart of the second argument I want to make, is not only that this is scriptural, but also, what is the pastoral argument for infant baptism, which deals with the question, how should we regard the children that are growing up in our church? Are they Christians? Should they be regarded as Christians or not as Christians? And, uh, you know, often the answer is not very clear. I, you know, probably many, maybe for some of you, you would say, well, you know, I want my child to grow up and make the decision to become a Christian for themselves. 
And you know, in some cases, in some ways, of course that's true. All of our children are going to grow up, and they're going to become teenagers, and they're going to go through hard times, and they're going to have doubts, and they're really going to have to make their faith their own. Their faith can't be dependent on their parents bringing them to church and their parents teaching them. They've got to read their Bible on their own. They've got to decide where they're going to go to the church on their own. But the fact that um, they were dependent on their parents spiritually while they were children does not mean that they were not alive spiritually. Just because biologically you're dependent on your parents as a child does not mean that you're not alive. It just means that a part of the spiritual maturity means that you need to come to a place where you can uh, manage your faith on your own and make decisions for your fa- uh, of your faith on your own. But until that time, does it mean that our children are not Christians until they can make, uh, that, have that independent faith? That would be a very odd thing to say about the children in this church. All these children are going to come to church every Sunday. They're going to worship with us. And uh, they're going to spend their whole childhood and adolescence worshiping on Sundays, learning the Bible, learning to pray, singing the songs with us, listening to the guy talk for a long time up there. You know, they have to do all of that. And uh, the vast majority of the children in our church, when they are very young, as soon as they can start speaking, if you ask them, do they love Jesus? Do they want Jesus to be their Lord? Do they want to have their sins forgiven? Do they want to spend forever with God? Almost uniformly, they say yes. And so uh, um, they are living, um, and, and, and some of you will say, you know, well, the only reason they say yes is because their parents told them to. You told them to, and they want to please their parents, and so their parents want them to believe in Jesus, so they say yes. But we have to be very careful in saying something like that. When a three-year-old says to us, I believe in Jesus, Are we going to cast suspicion on them? Do you really believe? Have you proved it to me? Have you been well-behaved enough? Have you shown enough fruit? And all of a sudden, we're suspicious. What are your intentions? Do you really mean this from the heart? What are we communicating to children if their whole childhood is that we're suspicious of their profession of faith? We're saying you need to prove something to me before you can be a full Christian, which is the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel says we come as, as sinners to be, receive grace freely. That's the main message that we want to teach to them. And so as these kids grow up, we want them to profess their faith when they're two. And we ask them, do you love Jesus? Yeah, you know, whatever they can say, whatever they can say when they're two. And we're going to ask them when they're three. And we're going to ask them when they're five. And when they say, yes, I believe in Jesus, when they're seven and when they're nine and when they're 12 and when they're 15. And we ask them over and over again to confess their faith. I believe. Every time we're going to say, that's right, you do believe because you have the Holy Spirit in you. God has worked a miracle in your soul. That is not natural. And it means because God is working in your heart and he's preparing you to serve him in the world and he's given you gifts. And, uh, and so we are going to encourage them with the promises of God. That is what our children need to thrive in their faith is to hear the promises of God, God's faithfulness to them. And that is what is theirs in their baptism. Because if we don't do that, If we don't treat our children as Christians, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to treat them as half-Christians. Because we know that they're not complete unbelievers. They still come to church everywhere. They're part of our community. And so we're going to treat them as half-Christians. And which half of being a Christian are we going to give them? The law. Right? Children, obey your parents. Be a good boy or girl. Here's the moral standard that you need to live up to. And so even for many of us, you know, maybe this is you, we grow up and we have our kids memorize Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents. 
And they say, you know, that Bible, the big Bible is full of stuff. What's in that Bible? Things like children obey your parents. That's all they know is in there. But they didn't memorize any of the rest of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 to 5, which says, children, you were chosen by God before the foundations of the earth in Christ. God has given you the spirit as a guarantee of your salvation, your eternal inheritance. You are saved by grace. It's not your good works. It's not your performance for God. As a sinner, God saved you by his grace. You just receive it as a gift by faith. And God has prepared good works for you to just do throughout your life. He's going to use you as a light in the world. And you don't even have to make up the good works. He's going to make them up. And you just trust him and you walk in him and he's clothed you with gifts. And this is who you are in Christ. This is your identity in Christ. And once they've seen, heard all these promises about what God has done with, for them, then you get to Ephesians 6 and you say, you know, in light of how much God has loved you, This is how you love your parents in response, is by obeying them. It's a response to God's grace in your life. This is the message that they should grow up with. And you can't say any of that to someone unless they are a Christian. All those things in Ephesians are only true about Christians. And by the way, Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 addresses the children. They are a part of the saints in Ephesus. And I'll tell you, you know, when I was in seminary, um, I didn't grow up in the church. And uh, I met lots of people who had grown up in the church and had grown up with this mentality that they really had to perform for God. You know, God was always disappointed in them. And it really was like a weight and a burden on them. And so Mays, you know, young people are 25 and they're in seminary and they're saying, you know, I need to go to counseling to learn what it is to have an identity in Christ. That my approval for God is, before God is not based on my good works. It's based on what Christ has done for me. I need to learn that. And, and they're trying to learn that at 25. And we should be asking the question, why are they learning that at 25, that identity? Why didn't they get that identity when they were three? Why didn't they get that identity when they were an infant? And they came into the world looking at us parents saying, who am I? Who am I? I don't, can't create my identity. Tell me who I am. You are in Christ. You are washed. You are filled with the Spirit. You are going to be a light to the world. You are son of the Most High God. That is who you are. This is the identity that's given to you. Now, some of you will say, but won't some of them turn away? Right? You, okay, you raise these kids as Christians, but some of the kids are going to turn away. Well, that's true. Isn't that true about any adult we baptize? We could baptize an adult. The adult could turn away. Are we not going to baptize him because he might turn away later? Or you might say, well, shouldn't we see some fruit in our kid's life before we baptize them and and start calling them a Christian? We don't do that to adults. An adult comes in and says, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, I need Jesus in my life. Do we say, okay, show us for two years that you got your life together, and then we'll think about baptizing you. No, we say, you need to be baptized, you need to be washed. That's the grace that you need in order to have a transformed life. Why would we not give that to our children? Why would we not give that grace to them? And this comes down, uh, really comes down to one of the biggest issues about not baptizing the children of our church. When we say you have to prove something so that I know that you're really a Christian, we are saying something that is the opposite of the gospel, that they are not saved by grace. And, um, you know, this happens, maybe it's happened for many of you who grew up in the church, and you had this sense like, you know, something's supposed to happen to me 
where I know there's people who are like really old, really hardcore Christians, and I'm supposed to become like that, and I'm not sure whether it's happened, so maybe, you know, you, you got baptized multiple times or accepted Jesus in your heart multiple times because you're never really sure what your status is. Or, you know, for me, I, I, uh, I didn't grow up in the church, and, you know, I was in, a teenager who was on drugs, and I dropped out of school, and I ran away from home, and then I became a Christian. I had this, my life was totally transformed, and so I come to the youth group, and they're like, oh, wow, this guy had a transformed life. Let's let him talk about his story. And so I'd tell my story to the youth group, and everyone would be saying, you know what I realized from your story is that I need to go, you know, do drugs and party, and I'll find out how much I need Jesus, and then I can have a real conversion and really be a Christian. And I'm thinking... That's what you heard from my story. I want your story. I wanted to have never known a day that I didn't call upon the name of Jesus and know his grace. But what we're constantly saying to them is we're setting up an expectation that is not an expectation that God lays on them, that they need to prove to themselves. And so the scriptural argument, there's a very strong scriptural scriptural argument that our children should be a part of the covenant community through baptism as they grow up. Um, And we are withholding grace from them when we don't baptize them. But the pastoral argument tells us why it's so important in their spiritual lives, and their vision of who God is and what it means to be a Christian is crucial. But the third question we're going to answer is this. What is the spiritual argument for infant baptism? And what I mean by the spiritual argument is that in our tradition, we're Presbyterian church, Reformed church, and what the, the Presbyterian tradition has always said is that baptism is not simply a ritual or an act of obedience that we do, but it's an actual means that God uses to give grace to our lives. There is a power at work in baptism, and that power is the Holy Spirit. In the same way that, you know, when you listen to a sermon, many of us think, you know, when I listen to a sermon and I receive it with faith, the Holy Spirit uses the sermon to actually change my life. And I left, you know, thinking differently and acting differently in a different vision of God. The sermon has a power. It's a means of grace. And we said baptism is a means of grace also. And um, there, the, um, uh, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are efficacious, is the word that we use. And, um, and there are two groups of you that I want to tell you why this is significant, to say that baptism is efficacious. The first group is to those of you who have unbelieving children. And I know that some of you are facing that right now and is a great source of grief and sorrow in your life. And this is a reality for us as a church. We have many young kids who are going to grow up and we're going to face that as a community as we see our children doubting, wandering away from the Lord. We're fearful about what's going to happen to them. And I put a quote for you in the bulletin. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's an old bit of theology. And what Westminster says about baptism that gives profound hope to us as we parent children that we don't always agree with the decisions they make in their life. This is what it says. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Okay, the power of baptism, this is saying, is, does not necessarily happen in the moment when the baptism happens. Okay? 
Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs unto. Can you hear me? Oh, there. Okay. Um, According to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. And so what this tells us is that God's grace runs through the lines of generations, but it happens in his own appointed time. He knows when he will work that grace in that child's life. And that is his decision and his purpose. And so baptism becomes a means for parents to pray for their children as they're wandering and say, God, you've put your mark on my child. You've put the sign of the covenant on my child. Make good on that promise. And this is one of the reasons why in our church we don't rebaptize people. You know, some of you who come to church, you say, you know, I got baptized when I was a baby. It meant nothing to me or my family. I became a Christian as an adult. And we say, you know what? It may not have meant anything to you or to your family. It meant something to God. And even your coming to faith later in life is God making good on his promises in that baptism. And we will praise him for that. And we will take hope in those promises. But the second group of people that I want to tell you the power, the importance of the power of baptism is to those of you with young children. You know, we live in a culture that idolizes children. And, you know, for most of us, we also grew up in a generation where we're hyper aware of our family of origin, right? You know, the family I grew up in and the impact that my parents' sins have had on me throughout my life. And, you know, we learn about it in counseling and things like that. And so for those of us who are younger parents, we are like paranoid about every time I yell at my kids or, you know, sin against them. I'm like, they're going to be talking about this in counseling in 20 years. I know it. And we're just paranoid about it. And infant baptism is an act of faith that says that what my child needs is something far more miraculous than anything I can give. My hope is not in my good parenting. My hope is in the power of God in this child. This child is made in the image of God and is born with a sinful heart that is going to rebel against God, and unless God does a miracle, there's nothing I can do. And so what grace that Jesus is willing to wash them and to fill them with his spirit, and that we raise our children by faith in the promises of God, trusting that he will do his purposes in in them in the appointed time. And this is the foundation of all our parenting. Our hope is not in our ability as parents, but in the great promises of God in Christ that are not only for us, but also for our children. Praise God. Let's pray.